Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts L. John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome, everyone, to the Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, what's streaming on your TV, and what's in that theater. In fact, it's what's going on in the universe of entertainment. That's what we talk about every week. I'm Al John Goh, musician, longtime uh, Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, and pop culturist. You can email me at aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, filmmaker, daredevil, and whatever you want. And welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Uh, Al John, uh, I know that you've had pretty crazy storms in your neck of the woods. Uh, and uh, I know we're going to be having some internet uh, issues, aren't we? Uh, we're going to, we're going to try to muscle through it, but yes, okay. it's been, um, we had some power outages over here. The internet might not be as strong as possible. So uh, I'm, I'm doing it normally we'd be a little behind the scenes. Here's there a peek go. behind the curtain. We're going to pull back the curtain and say that normally we see each other on the video on zoom. And then now I'm having to reduce and not show my face. So you can't see all the expressions that I have and talking with my hands. <laughs> I know. And it's hard. It's hard. I, I mean, I like having a conversation with you when I can see you, but yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We have a great show ahead. We have part two of Imagineer Tanya McKnight Norris uh, that we're going to drop today. Uh, and I can't wait to get to that. In fact, after we drop part one, Al John, we got listener feedback. Uh, I got an email that said, hello, Dave. So I had to jump right on here and say how much I enjoyed part one of your interview with Tanya McKnight Norris. Sweet. I, I just finished listening and have to say what a fascinating woman she is and what great stories. Thanks again to you and Al John for a fantastic podcast you offer each week. It, it, it's always a treat and very much appreciated. Sincerely, Alice, who's from the Los Angeles area, and she bills herself as an optimist and forever Disney girl at heart. Yay. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I, I mean, what a terrific email. Thank you, Alice. We appreciate it. 
and uh, we always love hearing from our listeners. It makes us feel good that people out there in the Disney universe and the pop culture world uh, are listening to us. Absolutely. I don't know if you can still hear me, Dave, but uh, uh, we do have another email. Did you happen to get this email that I CC'd you on from Jeffrey Hawkins? Did you see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to read that one? Yeah, absolutely. It says, congrats on another amazing, amazing show, referring to Rob Minkoff's uh, interview a couple weeks ago. The stories we get to hear on your show are normally reserved for attending events like D23 or Comic-Con. So thank you for recording and sharing this insightful entertainment information to the fans and making e- making it easily accessible for all. I also want to let you know that I finished the Shania Twain documentary and you should check it out because of your music and Nashville experience. I definitely would check that out for sure. But uh, here's another part. He says, I finished reading the book by Leonard Malton called Starstruck, My Unlikely, Unlikely Road to Hollywood. And there's a chapter calling Diving for Disney Treasures where he mentions working with you on the Walt Disney Treasures DVD. If Dave recalls having a good relationship with Mr. Martin, uh, I think it would be great for us to talk about on the show. Thanks yeah, again for you all know, your efforts. Uh, let, let's see if we can reach out to him and see if we can get him on as a guest. That would be amazing. I think yeah. uh, it's always it's a lo- always a lot of fun for that. And like I said, uh, you know, with all of our listeners, please feel free to email us, either Dave or myself, uh, and we'd love to hear from you. So there you go. Awesome. Yeah. Again, we love hearing the listener feedback and love getting messages from our listeners. Yes, absolutely. So before we get into the news for this week, Dave, uh, what were you checking out this week streaming? Anything you well, could uh, recommend? I got to tell you, it's crazy because I, I watched a Chris Pine movie on Netflix called The Contractor. Yeah. And it was disappointing. Oh, I like no. Chris Pine. Uh, I just felt that this was the, this movie was really flat uh, and I don't recommend it. So um, I moved on to uh, I watched a documentary on Hulu eight days a week. The Beatles touring years. This is a Ron Howard documentary mm-hmm. uh, that that came out. I think he did this like in 2016 or something like that. Yep. But I, I had a chance to watch that. It was terrific. I don't know if you've seen it, Al. John. I have. It's good. Yeah, it's it's really great. I love I love watching anything related to the Beatles. I know you're a huge um, super fan. <laughs> yeah, I also did um, a, a show. It's a new show uh, uh, that I watched on BritBox called Hope Street, season one. It's shot in Northern Ireland, and uh, that's really it, it was a really great show. And I have to say, I just loved watching it because. The cinematography and the scenery shots were just absolutely beautiful. Uh, really well done. Uh, I'd recommend that to anybody that wants to see. Uh, I also saw the first two episodes of Reservation Dogs, oh, yeah. which dropped on Hulu. Uh, and that's just a fantastic series uh, that uh, Waitiki uh, is involved with. Yes, yes, I did see that. And the previews look amazing for it. Yeah, I we we really enjoyed season one, uh, and so uh, couldn't wait to see these first two episodes of season two. So highly recommended. And then finally, I actually watched Luck on Apple Plus, the first animated feature out of Sky Dance Animation. Okay, so we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Okay. Yeah. Do you want Do you want to talk about it now, or do you want to talk about it? Because I know we have. 
uh, we we have a news uh, item on that. Yeah, let's let's talk let's talk about that during the news, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Well, for well, that seems like a lot of stuff. I like um, the reservation uh, reservation dogs. It looks really good. I mean, any anything you suggest here, it's just a disappointment to hear that Chris Pine's movie was was didn't go anywhere. Yeah, you know, and I I like him a lot. Yeah. You know, I have to tell you, uh, but uh, this was this was kind of a disappointment of a movie. Mm, I, I hate that. Well, I tell you what was uh, what was interesting. Um, we're on our quest to complete Stranger Things and get caught up, and we did that. And it was it was mind blowing. It was a very it was literally the Empire Strikes Back of the Stranger Things saga, as it were. Because, yeah, you know, yeah. look, it, it, it's a terrific series. I was a bit disappointed in that last episode. I I thought it was really long and it felt like there were multiple endings. I don't know how you felt about it. Yeah, there, there was, there was the, the ending and there was the epilogue and I think they tried to, I, I think they tried to wrap up some loose ends or, um, they tried to say, Oh, this got greenlit for another season. So we're going to leave things in a different way, you know? So, yeah. And this was also shot during the pandemic as well. So there was probably a bunch of just interesting things that they had to do in order to complete this season, like splitting up the group. I mean, which is a typical trope of, of these type of, you know, saga, you know, franchises split up the group, bring everybody together, but they were together, but apart. Right. So there was yeah, a bunch of yeah. different, there's a, I feel like there, there were some production considerations that they had to take it to take down in order to complete this season. But um, so it didn't go down the way um, it normally probably would have gone down, but it didn't stop me from enjoying it. I just feel like this is the middle part of the saga, like the Empire Strikes Back. The heroes have been compromised. They've lost things and now they're trying to regain things and, and there's uh, hope and strength. But there's that looming yeah, that looming big bad. So, yeah, uh, the, the, but the series is done, right? They're not doing no, another season. They, they apparently are doing one more. Oh, they are doing they're another pre-production okay. and I think yeah, they're fantastic. getting ready to film. So there you go. Um, speaking of season finales, uh, and this could very well be a series finale and I hope that's not the case, but the Orville, um, what a great way to end a, se- a season, but what a great way to perhaps end a series. And I hope that's not the case because my heart will break in a million pieces. <laughs> if that's the case, the last thing that uh, we saw, I've been, I've been telling you, Dave, we're a big fan here in this house of uh, the film's, uh, like Nope, because we love Jordan Peele. Um, yeah, Jordan Peele. We we've watched every single episode of the Twilight Zone reboot. Uh, we saw all of his films from uh from Us till you know Get Out and those type of films, and uh, we're big fans. So we saw Nope, and I will say it's not what we expected. Okay, it's just not what we expected. Did Jordan, you like it? It it's good. It's good. But once again, it's kind of like you you ordering a drink, thinking that it's an old fashioned, and then you get a, a cocktail and you take a sip and it's it's good, but it's not what you expected. It's kind of like this isn't what I ordered, but I kind of like it. <laughs> okay, gotcha. So um, leaves a weird and so he takes the tropes of uh, blockbuster films like uh, Close Encounters of the fir- uh, Third Kind and. Um, these kind of, I don't know. It's just a very weird, uh, weird film, but the acting is amazing. 
uh, Daniel Kaluuya, who was in Get Out, Kiki Palmer, uh, who was in um, uh, Scream Queens. You had Michael Winscott, D- uh, Stephen Yeun, one of my favorites from The Walking Dead. Uh, they're all great. The material is great. I understand what he's trying to do. It was kind of a roundabout way of doing it. If you haven't seen, if you've seen Nope, let me know. Um, I feel like Jordan Peele set him up to like, I wanted to do this really big kind of uh, block summer blockbuster film. And I think it's the scale and the way it was done that kind of threw me for a loop. And maybe it's once again, because of the pandemic that he chose this type of, you know, uh, type of desert, you know, venue. It's really desolate, almost like a, a ranch out there in the middle. Well, it's in the middle of California, but well, actually it, it was shot at a ranch, not far from me. It's, Is that right? It's, it's east of where we live Oh, okay. uh, in a town called Acton. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then that's the backdrop for this. Um, and I think Jordan takes these kind of tropes of these, these films and adds his social commentary. And I, I really appreciate that because he allows people to think, you know, that's a great thing that I love about his films is that it turns certain things on its head, whether you, it doesn't matter what your politics are, it matters what you think and, and how, how you perceive things and apply it to the story that's put in front of you. And I really like it. It's not preachy. So, um, Check out Nope. It's different. It's just different. It's not what I expected, <laughs> but it's good. So, um, yeah, I, that's all I can say. And unless I spoil it, if I spoil it, you know, but uh, I'd like to hear right right now, the uh, IMDB scores for it are about seven and a half uh, out of 10. And I rate it at, at a seven. So, okay. Um, if anything, the performances are really good and I, I really appreciate what he, what he's trying to do. I don't think it's his strongest work, but I will say that get out us were much stronger films and they did ramp up the, the power. I think this one's a little bit of a slow burn, Dave. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so anyway, once again, please send us your feedback. We want to know what you're seeing and we'll check it out in an ep- upcoming episode of skull rock podcast. Skull Rock Podcast. This week in Disney and pop culture. All right, Dave. Disney Plus reveals anticipated premiere dates and trailers at the Television Critics Association press tour. What is that, Dave? You know anything about that? I don't know much about is it. it. Like they, they have so many of these. You know, they're upfronts, and <laughs> you know, they're they're doing dog and pony shows for you know different groups, and you know, previewing what they have for the fall. Okay, well, I want to get your beat on some of these here. Uh, the Marvel Studios show, She Hulk, Attorney at Law, and they released us uh, several new trailers this week. Looks really good starts I, you know i did see it yeah. i i have to say when i first saw the title she hulk attorney at law i i kind of like winced you know because <laughs> it sounds corny to me uh-huh. uh but then i saw the trailer and the trailer uh looked interesting i mean it looked like something i would at least try uh i have to say but there there are there's also some co- controversy on how they're portraying the she hulk is that right? What's the controversy? Yeah, I, I, I think it's I, I think that there's been some, uh, you know, criticism from, you know, various corners uh, about how the She-Hulk has been modeled or designed. Oh, OK. 
you know, and I, I just kind of sit there and shrug at that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, we're, we're in a place of overly sensitive uh, people. Have they ever looked at the comic? The comic book has been around for decades now. It's been around for decades. You know, anytime Marvel has a a character that's super, super popular, they're always going to be offshoots of those characters like Spider-Man. How many different Spider-Man, Spider-Man are there? There's Gwen Stacy, Spider-Man, there's Miles Morales, Spider-Man, the list goes on and on. Same with, you know, Iron Man, you've got Rhodey, Jim Rhodes, and you've got Ironheart and you have so many things like this. And then you have She-Hulk, of course, an offshoot of the Hulk because he's super popular and she's always she looks like she does in the comic book. I don't know what else to say. She looks. Yeah. She look, looks, I, I, I just kind of shrug at that kind of stuff. I just feel <laughs> as though, you, you know, five people object to something. You just have to ignore this stuff yeah. and, uh, and really not give it much time. I, I'm going to give the show uh, a chance. Yeah. I'm going to watch a couple of episodes. Yeah. If it grabs me, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to watch the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It may not be for you, but it might, it's going to be for somebody. And, and so yeah. far I think it's going to be great. I, I get this kind of um, sex in a city vibe, you know, from this, uh, from this show in terms of, you know, here are a bunch of strong women um, doing their thing. And then she's kind of learning from Bruce Banner, uh, who's once again played by Mark Ruffalo, which is great. So he gets to kind of show, show her the ropes a little bit about what it means to be a Hulk. Yeah. And uh, you also have Benedict Wong, as Wong, the sorcerer from Doctor Strange. And I think Benedict Wong is the Nick Fury of this upcoming arc of uh, of shows because you saw him in, you know, uh, the Marvel or you saw him in uh, universe of, Multiverse of Madness and he's in all these other things. So I think Wong is going to be the, the threat. He was in Shang-Chi. So I think being in this film, I think he's going to be the one instead of Nick Fury to kind of bring a lot of these other characters up to the, the Avengers level. So um, that's going to be interesting. So we also have Growing Up, which is a Brie Larson and Culture House show, hybrid docuseries that explores challenges and triumphs of adolescence through coming-of-age stories, debuting on the 8th. And I neglected to say that uh, She-Hulk Attorney at Law will start August 18th. So I need to check that out. Awesome. Um, Yeah, let me see. We also have Dancing with the Stars. We talked about starting in September 19th. Uh, which is going to be great. We talked about Tyra Banks as well as Alfonso Ribeiro on that show. Uh, James Cameron's got a brand new uh, show series with actor, of course, award-winning actor, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, called Supernatural, which is also September 21st. It seems to be like one of those shows where they talk about, you know, different different things, and he just hosts kind of like that William Shatner show you did a few years ago, Dave. Yeah. And then they have, yeah. yeah, last but not least, you've got uh, September 28th, The Mighty Ducks Game Changers Season 2, uh, which has their coach, Alex Morrow, Lauren Graham, Josh Dumel is coming back doing uh, Colin Cole, an NHL player, and that will be uh, running uh, September 9th. So, Dave, hopefully you can hear me. And, uh, and then we move on to Cars on the Road, debuting on Disney Plus Day, September 8th. And Dave, have you checked out Cars on the Road? No, I have not seen this. This is the animated series that they're doing, and it's on Disney Plus, right? Is this is this the first season of it, or is it is this the second season? Yeah, so this is, I think, the first season exclusively okay. on Disney Plus. You've got 
Owen Wilson coming back as Lightning McQueen and Mater, mm-hmm. Larry the Cable Guy. And they're kind of like, it looks like shorts. They say every day is a new mini adventure with unexpected twists and turns. So I believe it's kind of like a, uh, it might be a series of shorts. Okay. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Now you um, shared this article with me about Disney plus in the middle East with local censorship rules. Lightyear won't appear on the streamer because of their references to uh, alternative lifestyle. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and you know something again, this is, this is what's really hurt this movie uh, is all that controversy over the same sex kiss. It's, you know, uh, if this is what they want to do, I, I think the movie uh, suffered greatly, uh, uh, not only at the box office, uh, but is going to suffer on Disney Plus uh, because of, you know, the various uh, rules, if you will, or, uh, you know, local rules around the world in different territories. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there is that sensitivity, you know, to other other countries and, and their belief systems. So that's just, uh, that's just how it works. You know, this is how you, those are those type of things that you have to kind of iron out in advance of, of the production, you know, you know, and, and the thing I would say is that, you know, when, when you create mass entertainment, you do have to be respectful of your entire audience, uh, not just one segment of the audience. You have to be respectful of your entire audience and if you choose to go down a, a particular road, you have to be willing to accept the, the, the consequences of your, you know, film not being shown in certain regions and, uh, you know, alienating uh, some part of your audience. Yep. Yep. That, that's all that that's all that is, you know. So but those are calculated risks that they work out in advance. You know, the, uh, you know, you you would think you you would think. Speaking of a great risk and possible reward, you look at Peter Jackson and Amazon. Amazon floated millions and millions of dollars into Lord of the Rings TV series. And you shared this article about how Peter Jackson uh, was involved in with Amazon and then cut contact off. Uh, but that really wasn't the case. What was going on in this? No, story? no. I, you know something. This is kind of interesting because you know I read this article and Peter Jackson was you know uh, a total, uh, uh, totally cool. Um, you know he he didn't say anything disparaging. He just said that the folks at Amazon reached out to him initially when they were going to do the Lord of the Rings TV shows, and then never contacted him again. <laughs> and, and and so. You, you sort of go, what? What's going on there? But when you read the story, there was executive changes at Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the executive that did reach out to him, she left. Oh. Okay. Uh, so, and then the uh, estate uh, of uh, um, uh, the Tolkien estate uh, didn't want Peter Jackson involved with the Amazon series huh because apparently they weren't that thrilled with how peter jackson's uh lord of the rings trilogy movies uh were handled interesting (laughs) so there's a lot more under the surface there well you know essentially they didn't want peter jackson involved in the tv series because they weren't thrilled with how he handled the trilogy of uh lord of the rings movies 
Um, so, you know, there's some creative differences between Peter Jackson and the estate. And so after that one executive had reached out to say they wanted to, you know, have him peripherally involved in maybe looking at scripts or something, um, uh, that executive then left Amazon. So, uh, you know, they, they never followed up because it was that executive that was the one that made the call. Right. Mm -hmm. So. So I don't know. I I think that's just peripheral stuff. Uh, I'm not going to let it cloud uh, looking at the Lord of the Rings TV series. And it's clear that the Tolkien estate is behind this TV series. It'll be interesting to watch for me because I'm going to hop on, I think, um, during this and see if I can backtrack my way because this is supposed to be, you know, uh, different in the timeline. So. Yeah, well, we'll have to see what happens. I, I think here. it's going to be a standalone, Al John. I don't okay. think that you necessarily have to be, you know, a fan uh, of either the books or uh, of the three movies that Peter Jackson made, which were terrific movies. I enjoyed those films. Um, I think this is a standalone uh, item. Okay. Well, uh, let's see what happens here. But that t- that's typical of any type of turnover. Unfortunately, it looks like more people should have been brought in the loop to pick up the pieces uh, to get this going. But uh, here we are, Dave. Luck, John Lasseter's first movie since leaving Pixar, Disney. Um, Dave, you saw it on Apple TV. Uh, why don't you tell us what happened when you saw it? Well, I got to tell you, it dropped on Friday, August 5th. Okay. And uh, there were a slew of terrible reviews. I mean, you know, <laughs> I sent you one, Al, John that uh, essentially said John Lasseter's first movie since leaving Pixar is cursed (laughs) from IndieWire. And I was like, what? And I read a number of the. Hammered it. And so, you know, I didn't know whether they were just hammering it because Lasseter was involved and uh, you know, all, all of the, the, you know, controversy, uh, surrounding him and, 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 you know, Disney or, uh, it, you know, if the movie really was bad. Uh, and so I decided, all right, I'm going to watch it. And I have to tell you, it was, it wasn't a great movie. I'll put it to you that way. Oh, wow. Well, (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, look, you know, it, it it sort of, you know, is derivative of, of you know, a bunch of different films. It, you know, it, it's dealing with, you know, luck with leprechauns and, you know, luck land that they invent. I have to say some of the environments are really well done. I mean, really nice reminiscent of Pixar, of course, mm-hmm. um, but. The story is very, very dense and very confusing. Gotcha. Uh, uh, and there's really not any real memorable characters, um, you know, with the exception of maybe the unicorn, uh, the unicorn character named Jeff uh, w- was rather funny. Um, yeah. And uh, John Ratzenberger, who's been in, you know, every Pixar movie, uh, he does a voice of a character towards the end of the film. Uh, and, you know, he's pretty funny. He always is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there there's a couple of moments, but 
is mostly generic characters and, you know, derivative of other things. So is it fair to say that Pixar's lucky charm outside of Pixar, Pixar wasn't so lucky when it comes to uh, luck? I, I wouldn't put it on John Ratzenberger. <laughs> no, it's not. Of course, that, no, of course. Because he not. was one of the bright spots in the movie. No, of course not. You know, I met Ratzenberger. He seems like a super, super nice guy. And it's, uh, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of really, really talented people on board with this film. But once again, um, you know, there you go. You don't bring us a lot of meat on the bone. And it's just like going to, uh, you know, you know, eating, eat a bunch of empty calories. Right. So, yeah. And you know something I, 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 I will say, you know, this is, this is Lassiter's second act as some people are calling it, but it's, I think it's being driven by, I don't know, maybe it's revenge or I'll show you because of what happened with him at Disney, you uh, know? Uh -huh. And, and I always feel like, when, when there's that kind of an undercurrent, uh, things don't always go the way you, 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 you think they should. Sure. Sure. You know, you know just, that, that's you know. all I can say. You know, again, there was a lot of very talented people that worked on this film, but, uh, it, 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 it just isn't a great movie. Well, there you go. Well, I'll, uh, I'll kind of put it in the queue for at some point to see it. It's not necessarily what must watch based on this, but yeah, I mean, you know, and who knows? Uh, I'm glad that you came in with your, un, you know, your un, unfiltered view on the film instead of a critic who uh, may be a little, yeah. you know, biased. You by, know, by look, I, I have to say, Al John, some of those reviews that I read were a bit harsh. They're harsh. You know, They're really I mean, harsh. They, the one gave it a D plus. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I I will agree that probably halfway into the movie, it ju it, it just got um, I don't know. I started losing interest, and well, yeah. it, I didn't really care about any of the characters. You see, that's what's great about you, Dave. You can remove the Lassiter effect from that film and look at it for what it is. I'm what, just looking at it, it purely from an yep. entertainment standpoint. Exactly. And I'm, you know, I, I, look, uh, I, I've had people write comments in and say, you know, they they like the fact that I'm I'm honest uh, and I'm not just hyping something for the sake of hyping it. Mm -hmm. I, I look, I I went into this movie uh, with a fairly open mind. Obviously, I read those reviews, but I wanted to see it for myself, and I watched it from from beginning to end. And when I say end, I watched 10 minutes worth of credits, mm -hmm. you know, and there must've been 50 uh, production babies born during this movie. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was unbelievable that's when they, you know, cause they always put the production babies in the credits. Yeah, that's uh, true. But you know, there was a tremendous amount of talent and it, it you know, I feel bad that it wasn't a better movie. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's all I can say about it. You know, it, it's, you know, uh, there, there's some interesting things in there, but, uh, there's also a lot of derivative stuff and I didn't really feel like the characters were that memorable. And, you know, again, Al John, when you look at all of the CG animated films coming out, they're all starting to blend together, yeah. you know? It's like humanoid characters with big eyes, you know. It's like, it's like I don't generic, know. yeah. It's like generic I, anime. I, you have that that style. Yeah, and, it's and, kinda, and yeah. look when when you go to Lockland in the movie, you know there there's you know leprechauns. I mean, 
you know, the whole, you know, four leaf clover lock and leprechauns. It's, I don't know. It's a little old. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't give us any, any fresh. It it was almost like the lowest of hanging fruit, right? The lowest of low hanging fruit. Yeah. Which is something that Pixar never did. That's a really great way to put it. It was that they did grab a lot of sort of easy, low hanging fruit and it wasn't that inventive. There you Um, go. That's it. So there you have it. You well, know? that was the thing but, about a Pixar movies is that there, it was always fascinating. I felt like every reveal that they had was peeling an onion and it was a joy to, uh, to uh, watch those films and look at every little layer that you can un- un- unravel and, and then digest and go, Oh, my mind is open. It's yeah. open even further, you know, like soul, for example, is a great example of that or, or, uh, or Wally, you know, it's just like something else to uncover where if, if, if it's just low hanging fruit, it's like, it's so pedestrian. It, it, it's, it's like, uh, you're not showing me anything new. You're not challenging me as an audience member to dig deeper. So I don't know. Right. Well, have a, have, I'm sorry, Dave, go ahead. Yeah. You know, I was going to say to just to change the subject, I, you know, uh, uh, we were going to talk about DC movies and uh, you know, uh, the fact that they canceled Batgirl, yeah, uh, they canceled which Batgirl. was already shot and in post-production. It, this is the big write-off right now that uh well yeah and you know something again here's another story where people like get outraged when they read the headline but you got to read the whole article and really what it boiled down to is that the movie uh batgirl uh you know had originally an 80 million dollar budget it ballooned to 90 million uh but it didn't have any big effects sequences in it to make it a theatrical release. And it was too expensive to go on to the um, HBO max, right? The streaming service, the streaming service. So they were sort of stuck in this place of, you know, we're going to take a write down on it, which I kind of feel like is really disrespectful to the talent and the filmmakers. Oh, completely and, disrespectful. And, and I feel like, look, you know what? The movie's in post-production. Finish it and just put it on HBO Max. You know? I mean, you could still take a partial tax write down if you don't make your money back. Yeah. You know? Yeah, apparently there was some kind of legal loophole that happened to where they could write this off because if they make any money off of it, they're going to have to, you know, go for taxes and different things like that or whatever, yeah. whatever it is because it's of just, this transfer it's of power. It's a shame to me. It's really a shame, you know, because uh, I think fans would have liked to have seen it. And I think that, you know, they really, uh, uh, again, it's just, it, it sends the wrong message to content creators. Oh, Sure. Sure, absolutely. You know, it's, it is disappointing. You know, on the flip side of this, uh, they have brought Alan Horn on, who was the chairman of the Disney Studios. They've brought him on as a consultant, or as oh. he put it, a consigliere. Consigliere. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I have no doubt, uh, because of this headline in The Hollywood Reporter, DC movies will follow the Marvel playbook going forward. And they're going to come out with a 10-year plan of all their DC comic uh, uh, superheroes. They have tried this so many times, Dave. Yeah. And hopefully now with the new discovery, um, you know, HBO max, uh, you know, this new merger and David Zaslov, 
uh, as the the chairman, uh, hopefully they're going to put a 10 year plan in that they're actually going to follow. They need to put somebody in charge of the DC universe, like the Kevin Feige of Marvel. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. They, they've been trying to do this now for a long time. Yeah. They haven't gotten their ducks in order. They canceled a lot of stuff on the WB network, like the flash universe and all kinds of those TV shows. So mm-hmm. let's see if the, this one overarching uh, show runner, if you will, or movie runner franchise runner, like Kevin Feige will be out there. Um, and, and make uh, heads or tails. I don't think they necessarily have to be like Marvel, but some, you know, some, some really good thought as to the direction of this franchise. Cause that's what it is. needs to happen. Look, F- uh, fast and furious has had how many sequels and how successful they are there. It's not my cup of tea, but uh, right. how successful is that franchise? Yeah. For and, Universal? You know, they're following a playbook. Yeah. Uh, I think DC needs to do the same thing, but you know, also I have to say that some of the Marvel movies are starting to soften. And, you know, I read an article that's, you know, raising questions like, you know, is, you know, the super, our superhero films, uh, is it oversaturation? Uh, Are people just kind of getting tired of the genre? I think people may not be getting tired of the genre, but you have to give people, you know, good reason to care about these characters. And sometimes it's, you know, story. A lot of times it's story. I mean, look at Spider-Man. That's a way. How can you say that it's softening when you had in Christmas, you had the biggest, one of the biggest Marvel films to ever be released? Oh, no, no. Right. Without question. But if you look at uh, Thor, Thunder and Love, it's not, you know, it's done really well, but it's, it's ticking down from past uh, uh, Thor movies. And, you know, again, I'm just telling you that some of the stuff I've been reading out in the business press and the entertainment press, uh, you know, and when you look at movie going historically, you know, say over the last, you know, hundred years, you do go in and out of genres, True, right? True. You know, I mean, you know, in the sixties, there was tons of Westerns, right? Mm-hmm. And then Westerns kind of fell out of favor and then they've come back into favor, you know? So I think that they're, you know, the, I look, I don't think that the, the superhero movies are going to go away anytime soon, but I do feel like they have to really focus on quality product because if you make a great movie with a great story, people are going to come see it. Absolutely. I think they need to look back at, at what makes a great film, because if you look at Thor love and thunder, if you look at that, that film, you're like, well, they certainly have the chops, but I think, you know, there, there comes a time where people need to be reined in and look at, you know, what, why is Christian Bale there? Is the story better served with more comedy and quirkiness or maybe more of a tempered situation? I think that's why it didn't necessarily hit all the right chords with all the Marvel fans and every moviegoer because it it had, you know, a couple different things. But it did with me. I have to tell you, I love the movie. I thought it was great. I I thought it was a really well done film. And, and, you know, to me, it was a little lighter, uh, which I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
but we are, you and I are, are, but, but one, you know, and I have other right. people that, that love the genre that also saw it the other way. Like it could have been handled much better with less, sure. less of the, that juvenile humor. But, yeah, but yeah. I think once again, uh, you got to find the right tone. Um, and still, you know, uh, there are billions and billions of the dollars of, at the box office, um, is, is still very respectable more than a lot of other film studios. But I think too, um, maybe the softening of the market is due to the rebuilding period um, of Marvel. And we knew this was going to happen after Endgame anyway, because you don't have franchise players like a Chris Evans or Robert Downey Jr. that are at the helm of these films. These the right. people, people want those characters, but you know, this was, this is what happens when you, you have, you know, a, a, a Super Bowl winning team, you're going to expect yeah. that, you know, you're going to have rebuilding for the next few years. And I think that's what we're up against right now. But hey, you know, we'll see. We're big fans of DC, too. So go ahead and, and rebuild it, Alan Horn. Make it bigger. Make it stronger. All right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we have some sad news. You know, uh, we released the show and we realized um, that uh, or we had the news fall out after we recorded the show that the voice of the Little Mermaid's big baddie, Ursula, the uh, the evil of uh, uh, queen Ursula had passed away at the age of 95. The sea witch has got an amazing voice with Pat Carroll and uh, uh, she is an Emmy Award winner, Grammy Award winner. And uh, unfortunately, Dave, uh, I don't think you worked with her, did you? No, I didn't. I, I never had the pleasure of meeting her. I know I know a bunch of people who did. Uh, I heard nothing but nice things about her. Uh, and I have to say, she was 95. She had a fantastic life. And she leaves behind uh, some, you know, an incredible body of work. Uh, but also Ursula. Uh, one of the one of the great Disney villains uh, that she did the voice for. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Just an amazing, amazing talent. She's been in entertainment for decades and she is a giant and she is well, so well beloved um, by so many in the Disney fandom. So uh, we will remember you and you have those great attractions you lent your voice with uh, to over the years for Disney. So, you know, may she rest in peace. Now, another one that uh, had recently passed as well is Clue uh, Gallagher, uh, who was in The Virginian. I remember The Virginian, uh, mm -hmm. as well as The Return of the Living Dead, passes away at the age of 93. You know, again, you live into your 90s. You've had a great life. And here's a guy who actually was a cowboy, part of the Cherokee Nation, uh, and uh, got into acting. Uh, and doing a lot of Westerns and a uh, uh, terrific character actor and uh, somebody who uh, had a wonderful life and leaves behind a, a great body of work. And now, Dave, it's time to go ahead and get into our second part of this amazing interview. Tanya McKnight Norris, part two. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, we're back again with Imagineer Tanya McKnight Norris, uh, continuing our conversation from last week. And Tanya has been uh, uh, 
basically camping in our green room, which is what we do with <laughs> all of our guests who stay on for multiple episodes of the Skull Rock podcast. So we we give them an army cot, we give them blankets, and <laughs> we have a full table of uh, goodies for them to survive on for the week. So Tanya, <laughs> welcome back to the Skull Rock podcast. <laughs> That's also why you see I'm wearing the same shirt. I know. it's I, Well, you know, so, so at some point we're going to have to remind our guests that they have to bring changes of clothes if they're going to spend a week in our green room. But I hope you are comfortable and we're so glad that you were able to stay uh, and come back for part two. I'm glad too. And uh, thank you so much again for having me. Oh, I, absolutely. I, I, I want to talk. Uh, I, I want to sort of go off on a little tangent here, because one of the things I thought was really fascinating about your bio was that you were um, you have interests in gardening, photography, of course, travel. I was blown away that you visited 130 countries. That's just amazing. You love cooking, do needlepoint, botanical art. And I, I really have to let our listeners know that you were a member of the American Society of Botan Botanical Artists. You are a former president of the Botanical mm -hmm. Artists Guild of Southern California, and you created the Beverly Hills Rose Society. You endowed a fund for botanical art at the Huntington Library and Art Museum and the Botanical Gardens in San Marino, and you've donated a rare collection of botanical books and Renaissance wood blocks to the Getty Research Institute. You're like my hero. You really are. <laughs> you are my hero because you care about all of these things, and I'm just very fascinated about the botanical art. So let's, let's just unpack that for a moment, and would you tell us, how you got into becoming a botanical artist and how that's applied to the rest of your life. Well, first of all, I'm still president of the, the Botanical Artists Guild of Southern California. Okay. And this started about 24 or five years ago. I was on the board of Virginia Robinson Gardens in Beverly Hills it's the kind of hidden treasure of Beverly Hills. It was donated by Virginia Robinson of Robinson Department Stores to the county of Los Angeles because Beverly Hills didn't want it. They had bought the Doheny Mansion and that had been a white elephant. So when she offered it to them, they said, no, thank you. And so it's now part of the county. And it was the first estate in Beverly Hills. And it's a beautiful garden. It's open by appointment only. So anyone who visiting LA or going to, you know, lives close by, they can make an appointment go. But I was on the board there and I heard that a teacher was coming from England called Anne-Marie Evans. And she was coming to teach botanical art. And I said, oh, that'll be fun, painting flowers. Well, I discovered that that's not really quite true. Number one, Anne-Marie is the doyen of botanical art revival, which has been going on for the last 30 years. She is a beautiful, wonderful person, and I adore her. But botanical art is really that. It is botanically correct art, drawings of flora, fauna, but it has to be botanically correct. It's not just flower painting, which is, you know, anything goes. Everything is detailed and very meticulous. 
And the history of it goes way back, you know, hundred, couple of hundred years, 300 years. When the explorers were going, they would quite often have a botanist on board who would do sketches that would be botanical correct with colors, whatever it was, so that when they got back to Europe, to Britain or another country, the scientists could actually put together what they had drawn and know the flora and fauna of that country. And then they would dry them. There would be an herbarium uh, where they were dried and they could try to resuscitate them by adding water or glycerin and trying to get the, the plant to bloom again. The Huntington has an incredible collection of herbaria. But this is what intrigued me was painting flowers, which I then discovered was this very detailed, very meticulous type of painting. And I became intrigued with it. But I became intrigued with it, uh, the history of it. Uh, I'm not that great an artist, never have been and never will be. I don't practice enough, but it intrigued me. And I started to collect books, which were really herbals or herbals from uh, the earliest one I, I think I had was 1518, which if you think about it, uh, Henry VIII was on the throne at that time. Wow. And that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And so I, I had collected this, these books and I would get so excited about them. I couldn't read most of them. They were in Latin, which I did take at school, but not enough to translate. Uh, they were in high, in high German. They were in French. Uh, I think a couple are in Spanish and then a handful in English, mostly in Italian and Latin. And what I just fell in love with were the wood blocks with the, 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 the pictures. So I treated them like picture books. I loved the, the uh, composition. I loved the, the layouts. I mean, I just got so excited at the age. You know, imagine handling that of that age. So I'd get so excited about these things. So I had quite a collection. And then I bought some very fine botanical paintings by a very extraordinary, uh, one of the most famous artists of the, uh, I guess, late 18th century um, early 19, no, well, kind of, no, he's later than that, but his name is Eret, E-H-R-E-T, and beautiful paintings. And I happened to mention that one time to the curator of drawings at the hunting, at the, excuse me, at the Getty, and she said she'd like to see them. So I invited uh, Lee Hendricks uh, to come to, uh, to my home, and she brought along the curator of Prince from the Getty Research Institute. And while Lee's looking at the paintings, I said to Louis Marquezano, who was the curator at that time, I have some old books you might like to look at. Well, they were under my table, dining room table. They were in my library just to keep them flat, you know. And yeah. I gave him a couple and he's looking through them very slowly and his eyes are getting wider and wider. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, he must be interested in what he's looking at. Because I really didn't think of it as being something that would be popular or other people would like. I mean, how many people want an old book of, of that age? And so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, he said, do you mind if I have the curator of um, rare books come and view these? And I said, not at all. So David Brofman, who is the curator of rare books at the Getty Research Institute now as well, uh, he came and he finally said, how would you like to donate them to the Getty? Well, that blew me away. Wow. To have something that, I just collected because I loved it, uh, be given to the Getty. 
And so that's how the, the Getty have my books. And then, since then I've given them, um, well, I keep adding to the collection, but I've also given them antique prints um, by most of the renowned um, artists and print people of that era. Of now, I'm curious, uh, in your collecting, uh, was this part of uh, uh, when you were traveling, you would, uh, if you were going someplace, you'd try and look for some old books or you'd go to an auction or visit a rare book dealer? Rare book dealers mostly, but and the only ones that I brought bought abroad were actually from the Paris flea market. Really? And uh, there's, there was a booth there or it was upstairs. He had more of a shop and he had a couple of things which I bought and brought back. That's the only, the only um, overseas books that I bought. So you got most of them in this country. Uh, Yes. Now, sometimes it was at a book fair that they were brought here from Europe. Okay. The book dealer. Yeah. I actually, I purchased them here. Got it. Got it. And, and it's just something you've accumulated over the years because you like the books, not because of the value of the books. Absolutely. No, it was, yeah. I had I had to fall in love with a book before I would buy it. Yeah. And uh, I remember there were, this is, um, I think it was a series of three books and this dealer had brought them from England thinking I would buy them or like them. And I said, you know, they're not my style. I just you know, don't care for them. Anyway, the Getty bought them because they liked them. And they tried to persuade me to buy them. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't like them. <laughs> now, on, on those kinds of books, did they actually have dried flowers in them or was it all paintings and prints? Uh, they were all, they're all either woodblocks or copper etchings. Okay. And, and, then, and are, they, are they monotone or are they in color? No, they're, they're, no some were hand colored. There was no printing, color printing in the period. Right. Uh, There are a few later books. I mean, most of the books I gave are either from the 1518 through to mid-1800s. Okay. There are very few after that, but there are some, including a copy of the Florilegium, Prince Charles Florilegium. And Florilegium is a collection of paintings or drawings of the flowers in your garden. And Prince Charles, and it was under uh, Anne-Marie Evans, who I told you was my original teacher, it was under her direction that they had artists throughout the world do a painting for the Florilegium. And I gave copies to, and they're signed by Prince Charles. And I was invited to go to his home at Highgrove in Gloucestershire to meet with him because of my interest. And that was a really quite an honor too. And, and what was he like? Cause I know he's, he's actually an avid painter and very good, by the way. He was charming. He's Absolutely. a very good watercolorist. Yes, he is. Yeah. Uh, he was charming. And uh, we talked for quite a few minutes uh, longer than his, I could see his aides were getting a little antsy in the background. <laughs> but yeah, we talked about watercolors. We talked about him coming back to California, perhaps to go to the Huntington again. Um, but he was just charming. It was a lovely afternoon. I was, you know, just like I have one photograph of Walt, I have one with Prince Charles. That That's pretty fantastic. Yeah. So, and and it, both, both are, both it, are kings. It, they were collected over a period of about seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. That was long. It wasn't that long a time. 
Now, are you still collecting and giving to the Getty or are you sort of like I've given my collection and that's it, I'm on to something else? I just gave them a collection of prints, another collection of prints um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I happened to be moving. And so things that I've treasured and had in my home have, have now gone to the Getty. And again, this is to me one of the highest honors that anyone could give me is that someplace like the Getty or the Huntington where I've given a few things and um, some Indian things to the Autry, places like that, that they would like things that I liked that I didn't collect because of any other reason than I liked them. Right. And um, I have one of the largest, if not the largest collection of Herb Ryman paintings. Wow. And uh, I have Rolly Crump and Mary Blair and Mark Davis and a T and um, a lot of other people. Tanya, I've got to ask you with your book collection, did you ever have a book from the early to mid 1800s that had a green cloth or an arsenic green, as it was known, uh, uh, casing to it? Not that I No, I don't think so. Most of the books that I bought were either leather or vellum bound, skin bound. Got it. Very few of them were in cloth. Okay. I, the reason why I asked, uh, the reason why I asked was I, I read a fascinating article about uh, the green cloth casing of books in the sort of early to mid uh, 1800s. And it was, they're having an issue with them now because there's arsenic uh, in the green. Uh, and so any kind of dust or anything, you know, you get almost arsenic poisoning from handling and breathing. It was used in a lot of things. I mean, it was used in paint mm -hmm. and I bought a house in Gilroy, the oldest house in Gilroy, and we restored it into one house that we made into apartments. It was built in 1839 and we were knocking the plaster off the walls because it was cracked and being repaired with concrete and I couldn't breathe. And so I finally went to the doctor and uh, I was actually swallowing uh, this plaster dust full of arsenic. And people had been remarking about how beautiful my, my complexion is, because that is what the Victorian women took was a pinch of arsenic. So they would have this pure white co complexion. <laughs> but I was killing myself because I didn't know. I wore a mask, but I was young and stupid and I didn't know enough to, to keep changing it. Wow. I was getting arsenic poison. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize it. I, I, you know, uh, because they used it for fabrics. Uh, uh, there were women back in the Victorian era were wearing green dresses. Green was a very popular color. It was very in fashion for a while. Uh, so there was a lot of arsenic being spread around. <laughs> it was surprising. You know, you see some of the old ads and they had Coke and Coca-Cola. Yes, exactly. But getting back to the Botanical Arts uh, Guild of Southern California and also the Society of Botanical Artists, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure you're probably familiar with wildlife uh, or, or uh, bird artist uh, Roger Troy Peterson and people like that. Is there a sort of uh, botanical artist in, in that realm? Uh, that that does books and is highly sought after. Oh, there are many. 
Yeah. There are really many. There are some incredible artists and quite a number of them have written how-to books. There aren't too many biographies or autobiographies about the artist. There are some books that give a kind of a chapter about some. But if you go back to the 1600s, there is one of my favorites, and her name was Maria Sibylla Marion. And they had an extraordinary exhibition of her work a few years ago, both in London and then parts of it came over here to the hunting, uh, to the Getty, pardon me. And Maria Sibylla Marion was married to, she was Dutch or German and uh, then moved to Holland, I believe. And she was married to a printer. And she, at the age of 13, now this is back in the 1600s, it told the world that butterflies came from caterpillars. Butterflies and moths came from caterpillars. And before that, there was a whole thing about they came from, I don't know, but it certainly wasn't that. And I think there was one man, a scientist, who said before her, but she's quite often reputed to be the first to say to the world, this is what happens. And she drew um, butterflies, but they were on uh, uh, moths, but they were always on the, the flower or the tree that they lived on. Because each one, of, as you know, has a special uh, home yes. vegetation. Well, she drew them for, through the eggs, through the caterpillar, through the, the, um, you know, the cone, the, the caterpillar, all of the different uh, phases of becoming from the caterpillar to the butterfly or moth all on this branch or leaf, uh, thing. Some of the leaves, are you see the caterpillars eating them. They're fabulous. And she actually went to Suriname to study the butterflies there. And there's a fabulous book called The Butterflies of Suriname, I think it is. And uh, it's just sensational. I actually went to Suriname to try to learn more about her. And they, they knew a little bit, but there really wasn't that much interest. But the final day, I was going down the Suriname River in a dugout canoe. And the young guide said, and over there you'll see the remains of a house. And it was a woman in the 1600s who came here with her daughter. And you can still see the remains of her butterfly uh, house. And I said, Maria Sibylla Marion. And he almost fell out of the boat. <laughs> all the hundreds of tourists I've taken, nobody has ever heard of her. And he had made a small museum. Sadly, some of it had been stolen, but he had made a small museum to her that uh, I was privileged to see. So that was quite exciting. Wow. But, uh, she is still a major influence in the world of botanicals. And uh, another person who is major is Rudute, who was the uh, artist at um, um, Josephine and at Malmaison. And he, of course, is renowned for his a portfolio of roses and also his lilies and other flowers, but he again is a tremendous uh, influence on on uh, art. I just uh, uh, the botanical the Bagsy as we call it, botanical artist guild of Southern California has just uh, finished a an exhibition that was in conjunction with artists in our group from Japan, who are fabulous artists, and the botanical artist in uh, Washington state and in Oregon. And it was put on at the Japanese Botanic Garden or Japanese Gardens in Portland. 
Mm. And it was spectacular. I flew up to see it uh, just before it closed. And the art is amazing. And it's, uh, some of it is coming to the Huntington in the Botanical Center, the Brody Center at the Huntington shortly. And, um, and what, what do most of these artists work in? Is it watercolor, gouache, oil, acrylic? Watercolor. It's well, all watercolor. Most of it's watercolor. Some will do pen and ink. Some will do a colored pencil. It's very popular. Yeah. But I would say probably 80% is watercolor. Um, there are a few that will do um, silver point and some will paint on vellum, which is very difficult. But most of it's just watercolor on uh, watercolor paper. I, I find all of this incredibly fascinating. And I, I'm just curious, you do botanical art yourself. Yes. Very badly. Uh, what's that? Very badly. Very badly. But but is it something like, have have you been painting all your life or is this something you you picked up later in life? I picked it up with, with Anne-Marie Evans. Okay. It's my first time. And she developed a five-step method by which anyone can do a botanical painting. Yeah. And uh, it was amazing. In a week, every one of us, we were all raw beginners, had developed, uh, had painted something we could be proud of. And um, many of well, several of us in that class are still painting. And I brought teachers from all over the world to Los Angeles to teach uh, the botanical art because everybody has their own little twist a little bit on it or they they use a different color set uh, it's it's really quite quite fascinating and, and the collection of books that you donated to the getty is that something that's going to be accessible to the public oh yes and this is partly why i was thrilled to give them to the getty because the getty have a policy that anyone can go to the getty and apply for a readership and ask to see the books and they're also digitized and online. And so anybody can go on their, onto their website and look at the books. And uh, they, uh, what has thrilled me too is that we have had scholars who have just come to the Getty to look at my books. Is that right? And that to me is really, that's special. So some of those books had to have been maybe one of a kind or close to one of a kind or no? Most of them were multiple printings. But some of them are the only known copy that's left in the world today. Right. So, okay. So I think that's really what I meant was it's the only known copy or there might be two of, uh, of, of a volume, right? Yeah, or some of them are quite a number of them, the only volume known in America, but there may be one in the British Museum or the, yeah. the, uh, one of the museums. Yeah. But, and yeah. When, when you look back, uh, on your life so far, because you've got so much ahead of you. Uh, but when you look back, what, what strikes you the most? What, what, what's the, what's the thing that makes you puts a big smile on your face? I think how fortunate I've been because I've been able to travel. I've met the most fabulous people. Um, I've just done so many things that other people haven't been privileged to do. And it's just, kind of happenstance that I've been in the right place at the right time or had the right talent or, um, I mean, look at me now, I'm on next 85 next month. And I've got this whole new thing happening with being asked to talk about my time with Walt. And, and you know, so, and rightfully so, I mean, how long did you work at, at, at WED slash Imagineering? Only about six years. 
That was your whole time there. Yeah. But it was a very crucial time there. Yes. From 64 until 71, I think it was. Yeah. I, 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 I'm curious, were you at New Orleans Square during the opening ceremonies? Yes, I was. So you heard Walt, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say I was, I was there, but I was also part of the installation. And I also almost stopped work on the whole square because we were really hustling to get it open, to get everything ready for the opening ceremony. And I got up a ladder and started to put in light bulbs. And suddenly there was no chatter going on. There was nothing happening. I kind of looked around. Nobody was working. I said, come on, guys. You're okay. That's a union job. Uh, I came down off the ladder and saw, you know, it took three men to put in the light bulbs. Yikes. I'm joking a bit, but I mean, yeah. I did almost stop the work on New Orleans Square. Now, uh, I've read that the governor of Louisiana was at the dedication in New Orleans Square. And is it true that Walt made the quip that uh, New Orleans Square cost more than the Louisiana Purchase? I think, yeah, because it did. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm imagining there was a good, good laugh from the crowd. Very small budget. I think, if I remember, it was $13 million to build New Orleans Square. And of that, I think our budget, and I'm, you know, this is a long time ago, I think our budget for interiors was something like 75000 Wow. Wow. You can't blink for $75,000 nowadays. Yeah, I know. But I, I'm also imagining, though, that a big chunk of that overall budget was for Pirates of the Caribbean, or did that have its own budget? I That I don't remember, but I think it had its own budget because yeah. this was for the buildings. Ah, okay. The excavations and all the things that went into it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's so fascinating. And, and and didn't you get a sense of gratitude and and, and sort of uh, a, a good feeling uh, when uh, all those people were at the opening of New Orleans Square to see the work that you had contributed along with the hundreds of other craftspeople and artists and designers? That I don't remember. I was just, uh, um, happy to be there and it was over. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. And but, you were on to the next thing, right? Well, we were already on to the next thing. Yeah. yeah. There was always two or three projects in the works. That, that's and Again, I was so fortunate because I did, uh, I worked with, um, I took Lily uh, Disney and uh, Diane Miller um, antique shopping. I took Edna Disney antique shopping. I helped them with their homes um, when, uh, Diane and Ron bought the uh, John Wayne Ranch. Uh Uh, I helped them decorate it. And so I I saw all the children, you know, from babies up. Yeah. Um, I knew all of the families. And I think this is, again, was rather a rare thing that uh, I knew them all. And in fact, uh, I was talking to Joanna Miller not too long ago, and I mentioned that 30 years after I left Disney, I was having lunch in a hotel with a group of friends. And I, this person came up behind me and she said, Tanya. And I turned around, it was Diane. She had remembered me after 30 years and came to say hello. And to me, that was a very special moment too. Yeah, yeah. I, I had the pleasure of meeting Diane. Uh, but I'm just curious, I, I, what was Lillian like and Edna, uh, Roy O's wife? You don't hear much about it. No. 
And I really enjoyed her. Uh, I, she had a lovely sense of humor. And it was, I, I remember she bought a beautiful antique uh, grandfather clock. Um, taking Lily and uh, Diane around was much less uh, relaxing, uh, or I felt much less relaxed around Lily than around Edna. But again, they, she was always charming and it was it always so seemed to be so grateful for what I helped to do. Mm. And uh, it was, it was very rewarding because a lot of the home work was really done by Emil Curry, who was a set decorator at the studio. Yeah. And so it was things like taking them antique shopping or for something unusual that I was asked to do it. And uh, I was talking to Joanna the other day about uh, uh, two condos that they bought in Aspen. And I was asked if I would install the furnishings just before Christmas. And I got a call the day before, um, or day before Christmas Eve, please, would I put up the Christmas decorations? And I didn't have any. So I had to hustle around uh, Aspen and find a Christmas tree and some lighting and some garlands and decorate it and uh, have it done before they arrived. But I got it done. Wow. Wow. So much fun. I go to one fun thing that's about to happen. Uh, I'm doing a, a video on Thursday at Walt Disney Studio, which I've only visited, I think, three times. Uh, and it's going to be in Walt's office, which oh. I've only visited once when he was alive. And it's going to be talking about my trip with Walt and the others on the Gulf Stream, which is coming to Disneyland. Right. Yes. So uh, that's going to be fun. Yeah, they've completely uh, uh, refurbished uh, the Gulf Stream and uh, it's going to go on display. Right. So that'll be a fun, fun memory. And, and, that was the, and that was the plane you flew in. Yes. And that's where I have my, the photograph I have with Walt is in front of the, the uh, Gulf Stream. Yeah. In New Orleans. I, I'm curious, uh, was that a uh, uh, one, uh, w was it a direct flight from Los Angeles to New Orleans or did you have to stop for refueling? Direct. Direct flight to New Orleans. Yeah, that's great. You asked if I can recap something about uh, traveling with Walt. Yes. Uh, I happened to be airsick on the plane and uh, we tried to keep it from Walt. I was pretty nervous. Um, I don't know why, but I was. And anyway, I was there sick. And we tried to hush, hush. And Walt found out. So I told you uh, in your prior interview about being an Imagineer that we had eaten at different restaurants for each lunch and dinner. And the waiter would come and say, what will you have to drink? And he's, she's not getting a drink. Okay, I didn't really mind. So I wasn't allowed to drink at any of our meals. And then in New York, on the second last evening, when that Walt said that, the girl's not getting a drink, um, Lily said, oh, for goodness sake, Walt, let the girl have a drink. And he said, I won't add to the juvenile delinquency of America. She's not having a drink. <laughs> I never did get a drink. But uh, that's how he treated me. I think, you know, I was about the same age, approximately, as Sharon and Diane. And I, I have a feeling he kind of looked out out as a third daughter. I'm not going to add to anything there. Wow. That that's something else was, uh, uh, I, I, it seemed like he was, uh, very protective because I've heard similar stories about Annette Funicello. Yeah. He was very, yeah. 
and very, very considerate of what I might find of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as we, as we get down towards the end of this discussion, I'm just curious, you know, what, uh, uh, for you, is there any story that jumps out that you find yourself thinking about every so often and laughing about when it comes to your time at Imagineering? Yes. How did I ever get employed there? (laughs) That's fabulous. That's fabulous. You know, it, it still stuns me that, I mean, I would see the other applicants and they were all, you know, very well dressed, very chic, and they had big portfolios. And here, you know, here's me. And I was driving a, a little uh, human mix car that went kind of chug a lug. And uh, I didn't have anything like their sportsy cars. And I had three or four letters of recommendations, and that was it. Um, so I was really surprised. That car, by the way, I sold some a couple of years later to Harriet Burns for $125. Uh, aside from some of the things we've already talked about, what are you looking forward to doing in the next couple of years? Are you still traveling a lot? Well, I'm hoping to. Uh, I'm moving house at the end of August, and uh, it'll be a much different life to the one I have now. Are you staying in Southern California? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm uh, moving into uh, a retirement center and there I can just shut the door and take off. And uh, um, people are asking more and more to talk about my time with at WED. Yeah. Um, So with that and all my other interests of which they're many and varied, as you mentioned. Sure. I don't think I'll have a dull moment. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. It's always have, good to have. By the way, I have 400 cookbooks that I'm <laughs> taking with me into this little apartment. Because I'm not giving up my cookbooks. Well, where are those going to get donated? Uh, the Culinary Historians, um, which is a marvelous group that meet uh, once a month in the public library. And uh, they uh, have a book sale once a year and give the uh, money to the Los Angeles Library to buy rare books. Okay. Well, eventually, when I can't use them anymore, that's where they will go. Well, that's fantastic. I I love the fact that you're earmarking stuff so that it it stays together and continues to be enjoyed, uh, not just by yourself, but by other people. Oh, yeah. I have to have visiting rights. Uh, Of course. (laughs) I'm imagining, you know. Well, I certainly would love to see some of the botanical books that you donated to the Getty. So uh, maybe maybe at some point in the future, you and I can go to the Getty. We'll we'll arrange for for a viewing. Because I would love to do it with you at the Getty. Yeah. But I would. uh, Yes, I would love that. It'd be fun. I think it would be a lot of fun. With that, I'm going to say thank you very much, Tanya. It has been such a joy talking with you. And you can hear our studio audience is going wild, you know. Uh, But it really has been uh, uh, wonderful to talk with you, not only about your time at Disney and Imagineering and your stories about Walt and working with Walt and and all these fabulous uh, attractions you were part of, but also the other facets of your life with these botanical artist guilds and the rare books. And, you know, I, I just really 
am thrilled that we had this conversation and, and, and to know that a lot of those things that you've accumulated over the years are going to good homes. That, that is very satisfying to me too. And I thank you so much for having me on your program. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon and doing more. And we will absolutely right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your Main Street to the world of Disney. What a delight. Dave. Oh, she she's absolutely wonderful. I mean, I have to tell you what a fascinating life she's had so far. Uh, and I'm actually really thrilled uh, uh, that we had a chance to talk to her and, and talk about some of the botanical art and the books she's collected over the years. It's just really fantastic stuff. She's really a wonderful, wonderful person. I love how passionate she is about her craft. And that she loves spreading the joy that she experiences in research and um, spreading her knowledge to to many other people and generations to come and sharing sharing it. I think it's infectious. I think she's just a wonderful human being. And I'm so happy you got to connect with her and connect us, the, the listeners, uh, to such a great talent. So. Absolutely. And I'm hoping in a, in a couple of months in the fall, I, I'm going to go up to the Getty Museum to see some of those botanical books that she donated. Oh, that sounds great. I can't wait for your I can't wait for your field report, Dave, on that. That'll All be right. really fun. And you know what? I would I would love to hear more stories of her and working with the Disney family, because I know that's just a tip of the iceberg. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to have her back. I would love that so much. I'm sure our friends would too, listening to the show. And thank you so much for getting this far. If you've listened to us, please, please consider uh, subscribing to the show and liking all of our social media that goes for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're on all of your favorite podcatchers out there. Once again, Anchor FM, Apple Podcast. We're on Stitcher Radio, iHeart Radio, Sorcerer Radio Network. We're on a lot of different platforms. So everywhere you get us, please help us out, spread the word, and give us those five-star reviews. You can also email Dave and myself, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or John at SkullRockPodcast.com. And thank you so much to our listener support shout-outs as well. We do appreciate that. Giving you a shout-out for supporting our show, making this show possible, and our big sponsors as well. In our show notes, Dave, it's all you. Yeah, and speaking of sponsors, Aljon, you sound incredible uh, because you're using your shore microphone. Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, and uh, one of our sponsors. Uh, also, you can visit theoldmillpress.com, another sponsor. Uh, and also, if you'd like, visit davidbossard.com and check out some of the free articles I have up on that. And with that, we will see you next week right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast is made possible by listeners like you. We'd love to thank Charles, Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast. What's going on? It's Al John and Kristen here. Summer's in full swing. The travel guru herself has got an awesome travel deal for you to kick things off. Kristen, tell us all about it. So those of you California residents, there is a special ticket offer just for you. You can purchase a three-day ticket 
with admission to one part per day for as low as $83 per day. This deal is good now through September 15th of 2022. Nice. And for all your cruising needs, any cruise line, Disneyland, Walt Disney World, or even Universal theme parks here in the States, where can people email you for their free quote and have you book their next vacation? At themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.